Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. Hello. Hello. Yes. Happy Welcome. Saturday night. Well, go ahead. Go Sorry. ahead. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I am Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Awesome. Sorry. Yes, someone is about to hand me Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> Monique, just... Monique's been sick for a few days. Yes. And but we are uh, the show must go on. The show so. must go on. So you, they roll me out of bed and they just prop me up. Literally, I am propped up tonight. But I am glad to to be here. It's going to be a good conversation. It's going to be an awesome conversation. I'm ready to kind of just jump in. But I know we have some stuff to talk about first. Helping us out on the show tonight is the one and only Bob Bontrager. Couldn't do it without him each and every week. There he is, the yes, professional yes. button pusher. We are so thankful for Bob pushing buttons for. He pushed, I don't know. We started over. <laughs> in, in, in all the excitement, there it is. Yay! Well, there we are. We're back. You, you guys, it, it, I it, hit the wrong button. I'm no longer <laughs> professional. <laughs> and uh, we want to invite you to join us on the chat box uh, on YouTube or Facebook. Uh, you can add your voice to the conversation there. And uh, moderating our chat tonight is Laura Hartley and whoever else jumps on. <laughs> so yes. if you see a little wrench next to their name, they are a moderator. And we are very grateful to um, our moderators who help uh, enhance the value of the show each and every week. So thank you. They're all volunteers. Yes, we are a volunteer-run show, folks. And the show actually is brought to you by the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology, Theology Mom. Mom. Family 210 Clothing. Yes, yes, yes. So you can, uh, we have our design of the night from Family 210. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. So you can go there. This is one of many, many designs uh, Bob has put together uh, over at our family 210 shop and help support our family uh, directly. Uh, a portion of every purchase goes directly toward helping put some uh, groceries on our table. Yes, we are thankful. <laughs> we, we are, are very, thankful. very grateful. And another way you can support the show is by hitting that thumbs up, share the show, share this content on your social media streams, because that is uh, a great way to Help overcome the shadow banning, letting uh, the artificial intelligence know that you find value in this content and help pushing that out. And if you don't feel comfortable sharing it on your main social media feed, maybe just inbox the link to a few people that you think will be interested. Send it to them on the sneak. Be like, look, I know we can't talk about this publicly, <laughs> but here you go. You'll thank me later. That's right. So tonight, tell us about our guest. Okay. So I first saw Eric Muldrow um, when he was speaking with Edwin Ramirez, the proverbial oh, life. Yes. Our friend Edwin. Mm -hmm, cousin Edwin. And so I was just like, 
Oh, and Edwin, in a conversation with Edwin, Edwin was like, hey, have you talked to Eric from Cobra Conversations? And I was like, no, we haven't. And you actually I mentioned I had only him. inboxed him to you 14 times. Yes, you had inboxed <laughs> him to me like 14 times. He's like, you need, we need to talk to him. We need to talk to him. And I was just like, mm, I don't know. I was still in my police officer's... I, I wasn't too cool. They're not our friends. Yeah, but, with police officers' face. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we, we need to, like, help people have some context that, you know, when you and I first started talking, and for people that are new to the show, you know, you used to have quite a different perspective on a number of issues. Yes. And one of those issues was policing yes. and law enforcement. And you didn't want to say, you know, that all cops were racist, but you had a much more negative view. I had of, a much more negative view of police officers and than I did. Yes. And I was much more like, well, yeah, there's a few of them that are bad, but I've been kind of conditioned to think of them as like, if I was really in trouble, I would go to a police officer. You had a little different. I had a different perspective. Yeah. Now I had actually never had like a, a negative interaction with a police officer. And I have called 911 my fair share of times, but, um, I, I just think that there's a certain perception and conversation that ha was happening um, among either like the people, the place where I lived or my friends and things like that. And I have a number of friends who have had negative interactions with yeah. police. And so, yeah, the, the trust trust issue with police was real for me. Um, but I think more than anything, it was it's the entire justice system that I had um, a lot of issues with. And I still do take up some concern with some parts of the justice system. Now, over the last year, we've got a lot of emails from people wanting us to comment about law enforcement and policing issues. It's not something we've talked about publicly because, you know, we need to allow people to have the freedom and the space to be in their own journey on things. And so you and I were having closed door meetings with law different kinds of law enforcement. We met with an ex us marshal. Mm -hmm. We met with an ex um, very high up at LAPD mm -hmm. Um, and so we've been trying to process a lot of things sort of behind the scenes. So even though it seemed like we weren't doing anything, we actually were taking steps, yeah. but allowing space and growth and development and study and research and questions and, and all of that. So yes. it's good that we're having Eric on tonight. So kind of the big question we're going to be tackling tonight is are police shootings an epidemic, especially, you know, kind of plucking off black people. That was one of the comments that I heard this summer was that the police are plucking off black people. And I think it really stuck with me um, and made me want to dig in deeper into, I wonder what some of the issues are in policing, um, especially within inner cities. And how do we have that conversation? So yeah, I'm looking forward to, to talking with Eric. Yeah. Well, let's bring him on. Let's talk to Eric. From oh, he already got fans up in here. Conversations. Joey. There he is. Joey says, love Eric. Okay. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. I appreciate it. Wherever you are, Joey, I don't know which Joey you are, but I appreciate Joey it. Joey Sforza. Yes. Oh, okay. Oh, big. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Much love, brother. So how y'all doing today, ladies? Yeah, we're, we're good. doing well. Doing well. Good, good, yeah. Good. Maybe you can start off by, for people that you're new to them, you could tell us a little bit about your background in, in law enforcement? Oh, no, oh, most definitely. 
My law enforcement career started in 1992 after I got out of the Army. And I started working as a corrections officer for the Indiana Department of Corrections. I did, it was a maximum security facility right outside of about 40 miles outside of Gary, Indiana, about 60, 60 miles outside of Chicago, Illinois. So you can kind of get a feel and flavor for the type of uh, um, residence we had. So I, I did that for three and a half years. In 1994, uh, I moved here to Las Vegas, which is where I currently reside. And I worked as a well, I, hired, I did some casino security for a minute. And then in 1996, I hired on with the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. And I worked with them, I worked with them in the county jail from 96 until 2006. And then I transferred out to the streets and I was a patrol officer and I worked uh, in the patrol capacity from 2006 till I retired in 2014. Wow. And that's just a little bit. I didn't even go, go into a few more details, but they'll come out as we talk. Well, I'm wondering, like, what made you go into law enforcement? That, that was going to be my yeah. question, because I feel like you've seen, like, you've done corrections and you've been, like, on the right. beat and all those things. But look at the beat. See, I know my terminology. Oh, okay, now. All right. <laughs> See? There you go. But what made you get into it? You know what? Just as a kid, you just kind of, you know, I grew up, I'm a 70s and 80s kid. So I grew up dealing, watching shows like Adam 12 and, uh, you know, the rookies and TJ Hooker. And so I always had a little bit of a heart for going down that route. And plus, I remember having a, I remember growing up in the 70s, I grew up in New Jersey and a lot of people automatically assume, oh, you didn't deal with any kind of racism or anything like that. But I, we most definitely did, me and my family. And I remember a police officer, me walking, coming home from a, a little drugstore. And I, I remember a police officer stopping me and looking at me and just asking me, because we were in a predominantly white neighborhood, predominantly to the point to where we were the only black family that lived there. So we left, when I was walking, this cop stopped me. I was about eight years old, maybe even seven. And he asked me like, what the blank are you doing in this blanking neighborhood? And I said, I live not too far from here. And he said, well, you need to take your, obviously some more expletives flew out of his mouth and get your and, and get out of here. I wasn't even doing anything. I was just walking. I wasn't harassing anybody. I wasn't trying to take nothing. And that always said, had a bad taste in my mouth. And, and I always knew as I got older, I always knew that if I was ever in that position, I, I wouldn't treat anybody like that. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward to 1987, I'm watching Lethal Weapon with Mel Gibson and Danny Glover. And I thought Mel Gibson was the coolest dude I ever saw in my life. And I knew I wanted to become a cop. And I pretty much made up my mind that I wanted to get involved in law enforcement. When I joined the army in 88, I, I couldn't go in as a, a military police because I would have to wait like another six months and I didn't want to wait. I wanted to get basic training over with. So I went in as a medic, but I always had in the back of my mind, I wanted to be military police. I wanted to do law enforcement. So when I got out of, uh, um, got out of the army, I, I went the corrections route because it was the only opportunity in the city in Indiana that I, was, that I was living in. It was like the best opportunity, the closest thing to law enforcement, which in turn turned out to, even though it was a crazy experience, 
working in a maximum security prison, especially in that in that uh, that in that year, those years, it turned out to be the best thing that ever happened to me as far as law enforcement, as far as learning how to communicate, dealing with certain aspects of the criminal element. It was a huge blessing in in disguise. So what what um, I guess what I'm wondering is. Have you had a lot of negative interactions with law enforcement besides that one incident? Was there, because I'm imagining that's part of the narrative, you know, but, yes. you know, what has that looked like for you um, in your life? Yeah, I wouldn't say I had a lot. I had a few. I had, I remember when I first moved out here to Vegas, I remember I'm walking across the street I think I was going to the gym or something along those lines. And this uh, police vehicle, police van, I'm walking through the crosswalk. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. He comes within, like he's flying down the road fast and he comes within two feet of me, like almost hit me. And I remember just giving him this dirty look and just shaking my head and, and continuing continuing on to walk. And uh but me personally, I, I that was that was pretty much the extent of my personal negative contacts with the police. Just you know, just a few officers throughout the course of my lifetime. I was a pretty good kid overall, I would say. I mean, I did some dumb things, uh, you know, I did some stealing and stuff like that. But my life of crime ended real quick when my mom caught me stealing some magazines from one of the local stores when I was about 13 years old, and she threatened to tell my dad that was it. For me, I was done with my, my career as a as a criminal. It was that was it because I, I knew if my dad found out that I was trying to steal anything, he probably would have tried to kill me. To be honest with you. See, so that was it, really. That was that was the extent of it as far as my negative my negative interactions with the police. So you've gone from military to corrections to law enforcement, like out on the street. What made you start? like commenting on police issues and um, more of the present day issues that we're seeing between like communities and police and the rumors of like st these random statistics of being plucked right. off and all that. Cause that's kind of the idea yeah. of co-read conversations is a YouTube channel. So go subscribe to Eric's YouTube channel so you can follow him. And he will often comment on these very popular and viral videos yes. and provide some perspective from a former law enforcement um, officer. And the data, the data that's, that's given when he's, yeah. you know, speaking and teaching on, on these things, it's, it's really good. It gives you a lot to think about, but anyway, go ahead. Sorry. My tangent. Now, can you, re can you repeat that real quick? What was the so question? what, what made you start code red conversations is to start right. commenting on these things. It, yeah. It's a few things took place. Back in, I can't remember the exact year. I think this was in 2015, 2015, no, 2016, I believe, was when the shooting took place in Dallas, where it was during the Black Lives uh, Matter rally, and those five officers got gunned down. It was during that, I was actually in Dallas. I was probably about a block and a half away. My I, One of my sons was sick in the hospital. He was at the Children's Hospital in Dallas, and we're about very close and we just noticed there was a whole lot of commotion going on down the streets we had saw we saw that there was a me and my family we saw that there that there was a rally and there was no big deal we ate at this uh italian restaurant and 
we're just chilling out. And then next, you know, we start seeing all these police vehicles heading down the road. And then someone turned on the TV and said that there was a shooting that had taken place right, right there. So I just gathered my family and said, we got to go. They were saying that they're going to barricade the area. We wouldn't be able to leave. And I said, well, they haven't barricaded it yet. So let's go. So I get back to our hotel that we're staying at. And I pretty much was up all night watching the news and, and I was just seeing my, my social media feed blowing up and, and people talking. And, and so, there was so much negativity about the police. Cause this is in, this is like in light of, uh, even though it's not police related, it was a Trayvon Martin case and the Eric Garner case and the Michael Brown case, all these different things that went on within a relatively close amount of time, few years, I would say. But you had all these different cases that went on, and 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 there were so many people who were commenting, and so many people who were commenting had no idea had no idea of of the issues and the dangers that police officers face. So I'm I'm texting, I'm commenting, I'm trying to talk to people, and then Mickey Addison. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Will and Mickey Addison. They have a podcast called Airing the Addisons. And we're friends on social media and I used to comment in their chat room that they had. And I, I, I remember just saying, I wish people would under, people could see things from the perspective, of, from the uh, experience I've gained over the years. And then I woke up the next morning and their show started like at five or six o'clock my, uh, my time, or it was central time at that time. Cause I was living, I was in, I was living in Arkansas at the time. So, they invited me to come on their show and talk about it. So they had me come on and we just discussed police uses of force. And I just started laying out the case as to why sometimes police officers shoot and, and why it is that the average everyday citizen may not necessarily understand all the issues that a cop sees. And I just laid out my argument. And then that led to me appearing on another show on American Family Radio uh, that same day. And then from then on, I just started commenting here and there. But then as time went on, I said, you know what? I really should, this is something that, th this information needs to be out there in a greater capacity, especially from my perspective as a black man who didn't always have the greatest of experiences when it came down to the police, who, but who worked in a capacity, not only just as a cop, but I worked in the prison system. I worked in the jails. I was a firearms instructor. I was a defensive tactics instructor. I was an active shooter instructor. So I, I figured that with my background, my knowledge, I felt as if that, and my passion for law enforcement, at the same time, I also, as I saw it as a Christian man, as I sought to understand, or I sought to be honest. So if I see a bad shooting or a bad police use of force, I try to be as open and honest about it. And, and, and I'm willing to critique. I'm not just a cop apologist. Like whatever a cop does is a good thing. No, I've seen it. All anyone has to do is check out my YouTube channel or follow me on any of my social media, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, and you'll see that I, I go against the grain a lot of times. There are plenty of officers that I'm friends with from over the years, and we clash. We clash on a, uh, a semi-regular basis because 
they think an officer might have been justified in the shooting. I'm like, no, I don't think so. So I just took my my training, my experience, uh, my love for the truth as a as a believer, and I just said, hey, you know what? Somebody needs to be out here speaking on these issues. So it might as well be me. Now you brought up um, a lot of good points. So one of the things that that I would love to hear from you on is, you know, your experience. You said, you know, I'm I'm coming at this as a black man as somebody who has lived through, you know, my own experience um, or few experiences with law enforcement, but I'm, I'm coming to it, you know, having all of these experiences within the force and within, right. you know, coming, coming from a law enforcement background with all you have seen, do you see that there's a correlation between ethnicity and police shootings? Yeah, I would say to some degree, but m- the reasons I say that m- aren't popular. I would say that the average officer isn't going out there trying to gun down black folks. I mean, I mean, let's just look at it from a numbers perspective. According to the uh, labor division and uh, various other agencies, there are an estimated 500,000. No one can say 100% for sure because it's not like the military where they keep tabs of exactly how many how many officers or how many soldiers there are in in law enforcement you have thousands of jurisdictions across the country, thousands of agencies. So there's really nothing to keep tabs of them specifically. But what you can, but what you can generally find is that there, the estimates put it at somewhere between half a million to nearly 2 million police officers in this country. And there've been studies that have been done over the years that estimate that the police can make anywhere from 100 million I've seen to over, to nearly nearly 400 million, some would estimate around 375 million interactions, contacts with the public every single year. We're talking car stops. We're talking uh, self-initiated activities by the officers. We're talking calls for service. We're talking when the citizen stops the officer. So you're looking at anywhere from nearly, anywhere up to nearly 400 million contacts every single year conducted by law enforcement. I always say if cops were seeking to hunt down black folks, black men in particularly, they're doing a poor job at it. With that number of of citizens, that number of officers making that many contacts, I think that it would be very clear if if, if police were actually seeking to exterminate, as I've heard people, some BLM supporter, supporters say, is seeking to exterminate the black man. I think it's insane, especially once again, when you examine the numbers. On average, over the last few years, I have some of the numbers written down here. Over the last few years, there have been, hold on, that's not it right there. There have been an estimated this last year, there were 15, no, not this last, yeah, this last year, in 2020, there were 15 unarmed black men who were shot by the, who were shot and killed by the police. The year before that, I think the number was somewhere in the neighborhood of 14. Just think about it. Cops making all those interactions, arresting over 10 million people every single year, and 15 unarmed black men got shot and killed by the police. And then and another thing I'd like to add on to that is 
let's not assume that unarmed means that you cannot be dangerous. Mm -hmm. Every year, whether if you look at the sources, whether it's via the FBI or the CDC, somewhere in the neighborhood of 1,000 to 3,000 people are killed where there's no weapon involved, where it's just the suspect's bare hands takes that person's life. Now, I'm, I'm not a little guy. I'm 6'2", I weigh about 230, 29 pounds. I, I, I've been trained, I've trained in martial arts since I was 17 years old. I'm pretty fit, I, I work out regularly. If I came across, now I don't, I don't know uh, how tall you ladies are or what your skill set is or any of that, but I would, if you were, you two were a police officer, if either one of you were a cop and you were on a call and you, and I was the guy you, you, you wanted, you needed to stop. Little do you know that I just ran a red light, but little do you know that I'm an ex-felon who has a gun under my, the seat of my car. I'm on probation and I was told by my probation officer that Eric, if you get stopped again doing doing something illegal, you're never getting out. Or you're looking because my criminal rap sheet is a mile long. And let's just say when you stop me, I I'm committed to not going to prison. Now I don't want to sit up here and, and make any assumptions, but I'm pretty sure that I could be pretty dangerous if I wanted to be, es especially if there's a size difference, a height difference, a physical strength difference, a skill set difference. So when when we hear the term or we hear the term unarmed, a lot of times we're automatically alarmed. We just don't understand how an officer could be justified in doing that. But we also have to understand that every year somewhere in the neighborhood of 50,000 officers, 58,000 officers are assaulted each and every year. So I just try to paint a big picture. I just really want people to understand that uh, when it comes down to the issue of police shootings, and and we typically go to the, the the concept, the term of unarmed shootings, that we need to really understand exactly what's going on. Let's find out what the details are. But as far as the police seeking just to hunt down the the black man and just to eliminate him, I think that is absolutely absurd. And I think that there's no substantial facts uh, facts to support that claim. Can I ask a follow-up question about that? I was going to say, Eric, you don't know me. I got these hands, Eric. You might be bigger than me, but I got these hands, Eric. Mm, okay. No, I'm just All playing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I just leave it there. I'm like, okay. All right. Chris is the one you got to watch out for. She the, okay. she the tiny but mighty one. Okay. All right. I'm, I have a question. Don't worry about me. That was just fictitious. That was it. <laughs> Well, I guess what I'm wondering is how do those statistics compare of the 15 unarmed black men who were shot in 2020? How does that compare with, do you have any numbers on the, on, you know, other ethnicities? That was going to be my question. You know, because, right, right. because it's, it, Honestly, what it what we do to me is that we highlight one ethnicity and then we say, well, we have this situation, this problem with this one ethnicity. But what we don't realize, and um, we actually had a conversation with someone earlier today who highlighted a very similar situation to George Floyd, but he, the guy mm. was white and we never heard about it. And so I think part of what you may be asking is, are there stats on white people who get killed by cops, um, Hispanic people, Asian Americans, you know, how many 
other people are actually being killed? Is it proportionate? Because when I think yeah. of the numbers of 375 million interactions, right. 10 million arrests, 15 shootings of unarmed black men, you know, I'm just wondering, like, hmm, I wonder how that compares to other ethnicities. Okay, I have a little bit of information. I'm glad you asked. That's a very good question. I have black and white. That's okay. what I have in front cool. of me. So in 2019, there were 25 unarmed white men that were shot by the police. And and far as black men, when I got gathered this information, there were 14 unarmed black men. Okay. And in 2018, it was 25 white, 23 black. In 2017, there were 31 white, 22 black. In 2016, there were 22 white and 19 black. So I so typically what follows after that, which is a natural question, is most people will say, well, we only make up, we as black folks only make up around 20% of the population. Why? The, the ratio question. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's a sensible and it's a reasonable question to ask. And this is when you start getting into the tougher parts, the parts that a lot of people really struggle with. But I go by the data to the best of my ability. And I, and I don't try to discount people's feelings and how they feel about some of these issues because they're very sensitive. And I know they stir a lot of emotion and, and, and I respect that and I understand that. But we also have to look at the hard data. So over, throughout the course of the, over the years, over, this has been consistent over, I would say probably at least the last seven or eight years that black men, a, a small percentage, a very small percentage, and I want to make that abundantly clear. There's a small percentage of, of black folks, black males in particularly, who are responsible for over 50% of the homicides each and every year. Over uh, approximately 50% of all robberies and typically more than 40% of all violent crimes. This is according to the FBI Uniform Crime Report. Anyone here can I would encourage anyone listening to me to double check the, the statistics that I'm sharing with you. The information is there. So if you're dealing with that, if you're dealing with a small percentage of our population, of our society, I said 20%, I think it's even less, I said 20%, I think it's less than that, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I've heard like 13%, maybe. 13%, yes. Yeah. 12, 13%. Yeah. So if you look at black males, that's only 6% of the right, population. Right. And there's an even smaller percentage of that who's out there actually committing the crimes. I mean, we're probably talking about less than 1%. Clearly, we're talking about less than 1% of the population who is responsible for these, these evil deeds. So when you're dealing with a, a group of people who commit that much, that much crime, by nature, you will typically put yourself in the crosshairs for lack of a better term, I should say, or in, interacting with the police. It's just a, it's just naturally. And so I would say that when you look at the numbers and you see that what would look at, what would look to be the disproportionate ratio, amount of shootings, the times when, when Blacks, in particularly Black males, are the victims uh, in a, for a lack of a better word, in a police shooting, we have to look at everything. We can't just look at, oh, well, there's only, they only make up, we only make up 6% of the population, but we, we're, there's a disproportionate number of times where the police shoot and kill us. 
therefore it must be because of racism. I think that's an unfair assumption to make. And I don't think the data supports that. Hmm. Yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's, that's a lot of what we've been talking about, like behind the scenes too. It's like, you know, you have to look at all of the data, you have to look at all of the factors, you know, how, how many, or what percentage of people are participating in crimes, are participating in violent crimes, especially, and um, what, per, how often does that lead to um, like interaction. officer interaction? You know, not even just like violent officer interaction, but you know, just how often is an officer called? You know, so I think I think there's a lot to be said there. One of the things that I saw you talk about on one of your most recent videos was like the statistics between the civil rights era and now. And that was what I was going to bring up is like historically, we could still say and and we want to note that the black community has had a difficult relationship with law enforcement. And so we don't want to just wash that all away and erase that. So it would be would be good to maybe compare and contrast historically where we were and where we are now. Yeah. Oh, most definitely. And that's something that I. Like I said, we kind of jumped into the deep end and I usually try to set the table a a little bit differently, just kind of let people know that I understand that the history there is, and and the history, especially in association with slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights movement, that there is a lack of trust that uh, many people of color, black, brown, in particularly black folks have when it comes to the police. And that's understandable. My, my question would be, when we have that, if you still, if we still make, uh, uh, if we still assume that the police can't be trusted, my question is, is that, is coming to that conclusion a good conclusion based on where we are now? So what I usually like to go over And this is from a study done by the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice. And this study was done in 2014. And the title of the study is, Who are the Police Killing? So the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice isn't a rah-rah, go police organization. They they take a stance that is, during this study, they still believe that the police are harming Black people in particularly at a disproportionate rate. But I believe that based on this study that they that they put together, the information that they gathered, they kind of pulled a rug out from their own argument. Uh, from information that they, they gathered from the Center for Disease Control, on, on the first, first page states that the rate of police killings of African-Americans has fallen by 70% over the last 40 to 50 years, Hmm. 70%. And then we go even deeper when we start digging into age ranges, because typically younger men, 25 to 40, or even teenagers to 40, have more contacts with the police and end up in trouble more often. So in the late 1960s, nearly 100 black men under the age of 25 were killed by the police every year. Wow. But as the, as the, uh, 
as the black population overall, now keep this in mind, the black population overall has doubled since the late 1960s. But at the same time, the, uh, there's been a rate decline as far as black men under the age of 35 that are killed by the police of 79%, nearly 80% decline, including the fact that the, our population has doubled. So there are more of us and it's reduced. And uh, there's also, when you look at 25 year old African-American men, men, the decline as far as the, since the 60s, as far as the police killing us, has decreased by over 60%, 61%. So there's been, so when we look at the numbers, and also I have another a bit of information right here, and this is just taking one jurisdiction. This is the NYPD. In 1972, they had over nine, they had 994 shootings. And this one goes to 2010. And they said, so from 1972, and this is before some of the some of the use of force case law that is in effect now, Graham versus Connor, Tennessee versus Garner. We can go into that a little bit more detail as we progress. So in 1972, there were 994 police shootings and there were 66 fatal shootings. And this is just the NYPD alone. In 2010, that number dropped down to 93 and eight fatal shootings. And I also read a recent report, a recent article, because the NYPD puts out information every single, every year, as far as their use of force. In 2019, December 13th, I think was the date of the article, there were 26, 26 police shootings. So we go from 1972, nearly a thousand shootings to today, close to today, 26. Don't tell, I'm sorry, I, I, don't tell me that things are getting worse when it comes to the police and, and their treatment of black folks. I, I just, I, it, it just doesn't make any sense to me. I think most of the time, I think what we're dealing with nowadays are many of us who don't have the time to re, do the research and check the data. We're being manipulated by people who are in a position positions of power, whether it be the mainstream media or certain political pundits or whoever they may be, who are seeking to manipulate those of us in the black community to keep us angry. And how do you do it? You emphasize and you highlight every time a black man is shot. Every time a black person is shot or mistreated or beaten or whatever the case may be, you highlight that and you report that over and over again. And after a while, you start thinking that this happens all the time, but in all actuality, it doesn't happen all the time. So was that, that um, nearly a thousand back in 1972 for the NYPD, was that nearly a thousand black people or was that nearly a thousand? Shootings overall. Shootings overall. Shootings okay. Overall, yeah. So I think that what you're saying, what I hear you saying is that, you know, the, the case can certainly be made that these numbers have dropped dramatically. I think concomitant with that are different policies about use of force. And, and we can go into that, but this is, this really starts to put things into a little bit more perspective. Mm -hmm. um, so I was going to ask if you could talk more about the use of force policy, because I heard right. you mention that and you explained it a bit in another video that I saw you do. And so I think, I honestly think it's important for people to understand 
Yeah, most definitely. You have primarily, there are two primary, there, there are many others that kind of support it, but there are two primary cases in law enforcement that really dictate the type of force when officers are allowed to use force. You have Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor. Tennessee versus Garner and Graham versus Connor. And those two case laws deal primarily with when an officer is justified in using force. And let me get to my notes because I want to be as specific as I possibly can here. So excuse me there for a second. But you have, but we have Graham versus Connor. It, it basically establishes a what is known as a three-pronged test. You have the severity of the crime, whether the suspect is actively resisting, or whether the suspect is a suspect is attempting to flee. So you have times when an officer is able to use force, but that criteria severity of the crime. If if are if you're dealing with someone who just did a beer skip, stole some beer from a 7-Eleven and he's, he's running. There's a big difference between that as opposed to he just robbed a bank at gunpoint and he's running. So you have severity of the crime, whether the suspect is actively resisting and to what degree. Is he just being non-compliant or is he violently fighting you trying to resist? And, and and finally, whether they're fleeing. So, and then if you look at, that's, uh, that's Graham versus Connor, then you have Tennessee versus Garner, which deals with the fleeing felon case. And before Tennessee versus Garner, you, a, a fleeing felon, regardless of the crime, an officer was justified in shooting him, but after that case, if I'm not mistaken, there was a there was a someone who had who had stolen something, and he was it was a felony offense, and he was running trying to get away from the police, and he attempted to climb over a wall, but then he, the officer went to shoot. He fell down, and the officer shot him in the head, and he and killed him. So as a result of this and other cases that were going on, they established a a, a law that. If the suspect is fleeing from a violent felon, felony, that's one of the criteria where he, he put someone else's risk, life at risk or whether the officer's life was at risk. They, a standard started developing over time to establish when an officer could use deadly force. So, you so now you have what is known as the reasonable officer standard. What would a reasonable officer do in a similar case in a similar setting? And so you have now nationwide departments that all have, I would say probably nearly 100%, if not 100% of all, of all jurisdictions of all police agencies that have some semblance of a use of force policy. They have some sem semblance of a use of force policy that, so not only do you have the federal case law from the Supreme Court, you also have oftentimes even higher standards that are established by most people, most uh, local agencies. With, with these different policies and things like that that are in place. And I, I feel like with um, some of the current 
things that have happened in culture where people are saying, well, you know, police use too much force and things like that. Do you think police are afraid now to use force? Like if some if if you have a felon um, or somebody who's like just committed a murder and now he's running away, but he's running and he could potentially endanger someone else. But I can't shoot him because he's running. Like, do you? Do you think that police are just afraid on some level to to even interact and use force that may be needed? Yeah, I would say that's definitely the case in uh, in some cases. And I've read articles and interacted with some officers who literally say that they just don't do the things that they used to do. They used to, where, where there was a time when they would be more proactive. Typically, when I say proactive, meaning you go into the communities and you try to put out fires. When you see smoke, you try to put it, keep, make sure it doesn't escalate and become a, a fire. So I would say that that hasn't been the case for the last few years. You have officers being less proactive. 2020 was a, a terrible example of that. A terrible as in horrible, because you saw all the protests happening nationwide, worldwide to some degree, and you saw the crime rate skyrocketing. Heather McDonald, she's the author of a, a phenomenal book called The War on Cops. And she, she did an article, and I made a video on it, so you can check it out. Uh, it's, ah, man, I'm drawing a blank on the name of it, but it deals with a violent year, like taking stock of a violent year. I think something along those lines was the title of my video. And she details all the increase in crime she details the fact that over the this last year, it is estimated. We don't have the facts and figures. We won't know typically until probably the middle, maybe around August or September when the FBI puts out their statistics as far as homicides and nationwide. So they estimate that there'll be an increase in homicides by 2,000. There'll be 2,000 2, more people died in 2020 than the previous year in 2019. And it's, it's primarily linked to the fact that during the George Floyd, the BLM, the Antifa protests, riots, that you saw people time and time again, you saw the police pull back. You saw the police officer pull back in order to not because they were being threatened. They had, I got my printer pumping. My daughter's over here printing something over here next <laughs> to me. You had, you had the police pulling back because they were being attacked violently. They, they, they were like, there's one incident, incident, uh, incident in Chicago that I can think of right off the top of my head where they're protecting some statue and you have a bunch of protesters out there and they're throwing frozen water bottles at these officers and there were all kinds of injuries. And there are videos all over. There are interviews done by Chicago newspapers and, and the New York Post and different places like that that are, that are speaking on the fact that cops just aren't policing as hard. And the unfortunate repercussion of that is when you look at BLM, their stated, their stated claim is that they, they con they're concerned about Black lives. But when they talk about defunding and abolishing the police, the people that they profess, profess to care so much about are the ones who suffer the most. Because most of those lost lives, those 2,000 uh, inc that increased by 2,000 homicides from last year estimated, the vast majority of them are Black. 
So you the so you have the unfortunate reality is that during those times when the police are pulling back, you just have a a increase in crime. And because it's like if you're a police officer, if you want to be proactive, you're more likely to get in a situation where you end up having to use force. And who knows if someone's just going to show, and it could be a bad use of force. Let me just say that. The officer could abuse his authority. He could abuse his power. That clearly happens. And I would never deny the reality of that. But also at the same time, I would say the vast majority of time, the vast majority of officers do their job to the best of their ability. They try to do a righteous job. And if someone just shows a two minute video of you body slamming someone and it looks terrible, but you don't get any context prior to that. That's why a lot of cops just aren't policing as hard. So in thinking back to last summer, a lot of the narrative was that police are engaged in systemic racism, that Mm -hmm. policing and law enforcement is one of the top examples Mm -hmm. of systemic racism. And so in order for that to be a system, it's like, across the board, like you said earlier, there's thousands of jurisdictions, but yes. there would have to be kind of some some agreement or some collusion across jurisdictions that we are going to intentionally either target black people or that our policies and our procedures just end up impacting black people in a disproportionate way. What would be your response to that? Do you mm-hmm. see law enforcement as an example, a legitimate example of systemic racism? Well, I question the whole concept. Personally, I question the whole argument that systemic racism is a real thing. Now, do I believe racism exists? Absolutely. I've experienced it more, probably more times than most people who are watching this show have. at growing up in the 70s, growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and being reminded on a almost daily basis from from everyone, from the people that ran, that ran the stores to some of the neighborhood kids were being reminded that we were not welcome there. So I definitely will never say that racism is real. But when we look at it as far as is not system, real, is not real. You would never say racism is not real. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, let me. Yeah, I would never say racism isn't real, but when it comes to systemic racism, when you look at these institutions, these structures, so on and so forth, I'm just, I'm just not seeing it. I think the laws. I think the vast. You might be able to find some laws here and there in some little hick town because there are probably there are millions of laws on the books that haven't been changed since back in the '50s, '40s, even for, further back. If I'm not mistaken, there was a recent case somewhere down south where there was a retired, a black retired police officer who, was, who wanted to get buried in this cemetery. And I think it was primarily for police officers, but there was a law on the books that said he couldn't be buried there. And it was from back in the 30s or 40s or 50s that said he couldn't, that black, black men, black people couldn't be buried there. And I think cases like that pop up here and there because there are so many crazy laws on the books over the years and every law just people just haven't haven't went through to get rid of all the, those ridiculous ones. So I do 
But I think that situations like that are very, very rare. I think when you examine each one, and a lot of times if we look at the history, we see that there isn't, and I just don't see any justification for people to make that claim as far as systemic racism. So if you say that there are laws that law enforcement is systemic, inherently racist, and it and from its very foundations, it was something to do harm to black folks, I, I just can't buy into it. The rule of law goes back way further than the history of our country. The rule the of law. It's the Bible. It, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. And a lot, you know, and I know there are a lot of folks who ain't thinking about the Bible, so they don't want to hear that. But when you look at it, it, it dates back from, in the history of mankind. There have been governments, there have been whether, however you have, whether that be a tribe or a, a, a ruling party, judges or something, something along those lines, people that, that are there to maintain order. And there needs to be some semblance of order maintained and you need to have people who act in the capacity to quell violence and quell evil and, and to suppress it when it pops up. So there's just no getting away with it. And if you have a certain group of people who have a tendency to act more violently, regardless of their skin color, they have to be dealt with. And I think there could be a lot of reasons why there are aspects, there, there, this could be a whole nother show or a whole nother conversation, but I think there could be so many reasons why we see so many issues popping up in the black community here yeah. in America. When you see the fatherless home rate, when you. Yeah, I think that would be a great show to have you back yeah. on, because I know Monique's been thinking through that, too. I, one thing that Monique and I have talked to some other law enforcement people about, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on this related to the systemic racism question is the kind of we try to differentiate between like macro race, systemic racism, where it's like, well, everything is part of a system and everything is racist to maybe more like microsystems that you could have a situation in maybe a precinct where you have four or five officers who sort of collude together to target people a certain way or to engage in a certain form of corruption. And then maybe that would be like what we call a, a microsystem where right. maybe they're doing that or another type of system that we've talked about is maybe a cultural practice in a particular region of the country that maybe there's nothing on the books, but there's just sort of this cultural understanding tradition. Of, and tradition of how we interact with certain people in a certain kind of a way. I'm wondering if, if you see any validity to that. I would say def there, there has to be some. I, I can't, I think that what I would say is like when we, believe that to be the case let's deal with it on a case by case basis if we yeah. if we if we believe that we see something that's rooted w within a culture in a certain area i'll give you for instance i got a ton of stories so you got the real me you got the rain me in every now and then but i got a ton of stories over the years when i first hired on with the las vegas metropolitan police department after completing the corrections officer academy my first night, my first night in in field training, which is basically like on the job training, where you you get assigned a specific officer to watch you and teach you how to do the job. I guess my field training officer wanted to 
see if I if I could cut the mustard. This is my assumption. But he had he instigated an interaction with a black inmate to the point to where he ended up going in the cell and just him and this other officer went in there and they just beat the snot out of this guy. And it was totally unjustified. So here I am, first day on the job. I have a video where I give a full presentation and I talk about it. It talks about police brutality. And first day on the job, just prior to hiring on with Metro, I was work, I was making seven bucks an hour doing security at some country club. And my first day, they I'm like, you want me to get involved and do this? And all I did was assist in securing the guy and we took him to disciplinary housing. And I can recall, I remember when we stood him up, he had blood pouring down his face and he looked at me, he's like, he, look, he didn't look at anybody else. He said, man, how are you gonna let them treat me like that? How are you gonna let them do me like that? And man, I'm telling you, when I even when I talk about that now, I get emotional because I understand that there is, a, there can be a culture there can be a culture with it, with certain group of like-minded folks who think the same way, who may look at different groups of people as if they're problematic and they're going to be the ones to teach them, right? You know, get, teach them a lesson. Short, long story short, when it came down to that situation, I confronted my field training officer and I, and I said, and we had a long talk. And as a result of that, I, I gained a short-term reputation as being a snitch with some of the officers. Cause there was, oh, he's trying to tell, he's trying to get us in trouble. All I knew was that I knew right from wrong. I had some experience in corrections prior to coming, coming here to Vegas. And I knew the way he treated up that inmate was wrong. So, and, and throughout, and over the years, when I first hired on with, at the County jail, there was within some people, a culture of being heavy handed. Now, could I say that it was intentionally racially motivated, I couldn't make that claim. I think it's hard a, a lot of times because you have to know what's going on in someone's head a lot of times because you have to see, unless you see some form of a consistent pattern that takes place. I think it's really difficult to make the jump to say, okay, this is purely racially motivated. Can it, can it be found out that that is the case? I think absolutely. But I think that each one, each, each of these, when they do pop up, they need to be addressed and they need to be handled on and yes oh what happened oh, what? we lost you oh did he oh i think he maybe he dropped we lost him well i think just in following up with that it's very similar to what you and i have been saying about how if you're going to kind of be a are you there I hear you guys kind of faded out. Okay. For a okay. Yeah, you faded out too. What I what right. I love about that answer, Eric, is that it's it's really similar to some things that Monique and I have been talking about. But as a brother in the Lord, I think we we should probably say that the reason you know you knew that was wrong was because the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the Word of God. You're mm -hmm. a man of God. You know the Word. Your, your soul is informed and shaped by the word. So you knew like this isn't right. And so we have obligations as Christians to follow God's law in our workplace 
in in whatever that looks like, even if it means going against that being called a snitch and sinful culture. Yeah, yeah. And right. you know, one of the things that I want to I can chime in real yeah, quick. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Chime in real quick. Back then, back then, I had some semblance of a biblical worldview because I was raised in the church, especially in my later teen years. And I was still living in the world very much. So I wouldn't say there was a spirit leading me, but it was the conscience that Romans talks about. Mm. The fact the fact that the conscience bears witness in all of us. And I think that's what kept me wanting to do right and seeing wrong and being able to acknowledge the wrong that was in front of me. That's good. You know, one of the things you pointed out was, um, and I don't remember exactly how you said it now, but it was like, you know, those group of people who want to teach the lesson to those people, you know, but those people can come in any color and from any background. And this is one of the things that I am irritated with, especially like in media and when it comes to law enforcement, it's like, well, the people who always want to teach the lessons always have to be white people. But that's not Mm. necessarily true. Like I could want to teach a lesson to somebody and I'm black. You know, I might want to teach a lesson to white people. We, We tend to build this assumption that it only goes one way and that there is never or has never been a time in our recent history where a white person could have been on the, the other end of that fist. And that's not true, but yet this is the narrative that we're selling or being sold through a lot of our mainstream media outlets. It's like, well, you know, black people are always the one on the end learning the lessons. So yeah, yeah, just made me think about that. There's, uh, were you going to say something? Yeah, I would say that, If you look at the even recent history, when you go to different jurisdictions, whether it be in New York City, when it comes to some of the or New York, when it comes to some of the corrections facilities or the state or the uh, Detroit Police Department and various police agencies, Baltimore, all of these agencies had to deal with what is known as a consent decree. That's when there had been a complaint, uh, overwhelming number of complaints of abuses of power that were found to have some level of truth truth to it. All of them, and, and the federal government comes in and, and, and kind of acts as an oversight uh, committee and keeps tabs of their use of force and, 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 and expects them to be retrained. All of these jurisdictions or agencies that I mentioned are all predominantly Black. It, uh, I think it was like, I'm not sure what what... what corrections department, what jail it was in in New York. But that place was primarily black. The Detroit PD was prim, prim, primarily black. Baltimore was, uh, their police agency was primarily black. And they still had complaints of excessive force. And they had a, and the, and the predominant, the, the most of the people in that were higher ranking in those agencies were black. So this can happen anywhere when it comes to police agencies. And us as believers, we know that is just the sinful nature of man. It can happen anywhere. And if we just want to make these assumptions that it's just white folks, then we're just not being honest. And we're definitely not being biblically accurate. I agree. Um, there's a comment on Facebook that I want to read and get your thoughts on. Um, it, I mean, yeah, on YouTube, sorry. It's from Stephen Lane, and he says, all these datas may help you to have a counter argument, but trust me, black parents still want, I'm sorry, 
black parents still will teach their sons, especially how to come home safe, which brings us, you know, to that, like the conversation, you know, like my mama had the conversation with me. And I remember having the conversation with me and my brother on like, you know, if you're ever pulled over, if you're walking down the street and a cop stops you, how do you respond and all of that? And well, our friend, uh, go ahead. Uh, Jeff Davis said his same thing. He says his parents had the same conversation with him and he's white. You yeah. know, this is this is how you interact with the police. This is what you do. This is what you do with your hands. But see, I think being black, we uh, we we present it in a different way. It's, okay. it's not mm-hmm. because, you know, you are interacting with law enforcement. You're act- interacting with a leader and someone who should be respected in your community. You're interacting with someone who's probably going to kill you before you get right. home. Okay. So instead of you, you know, mouthing off or being disrespectful or whatever. I need you to do all that you can so that you get home. Got it. And so my question is, is, you know, are these, I think historically, yes, we might've needed to have these conversations with our young men and women in the black community being like, look, you know, in this area of the country or during this time when, when it was really rough between blacks and, and police officers and things like that, that maybe that conversation was more needed at that time. Do you still see that, see this as a conversation that needs to be had in that light? Like I can see, Yes. How do you how are you respectful toward law enforcement? But what about that whole conversation of I want I want you to get home so that you're not plucked off conversation? Yeah, I think I'm just going to say it. I think that's nonsense. I think that is nonsense. People may do make that choice to have that conversation. But is it factually true that you as a black man, young black person, probably won't make it home if you come in and have a negative contact with the police? That's garbage. I'm sorry. I, I I'm I'm I want to be compassionate to people and be understanding. I get it. I used to have a similar mindset when I was a younger man. When you see this stuff all the time, I mean, you're like indoctrinated to assume this to be true. Yes. But when you look at everything just on a factual basis, you may not like the numbers, but then anything you have to understand what's really going on. Are you just going to believe? what the media tells you, or are you gonna sit back and say, hmm, what's really going on? So when, so when I say, let's, let's look and see what's really going on, let's look at a higher percentage of the more popular uh, shootings or police interactions that took place that, and that didn't go well. You'll see a consistent theme occur. And before I get continue on speaking, let me make this abundantly clear. I'm not saying that these men or women deserve to die. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is you will see a consistent theme of Freddie Gray, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Stephen Clark, Rayshard Brooks, uh, uh, um, Blake, what's his name? Um, Jacob Blake. Just off the top of my head, and I'm not saying this happens all the time, but let's I'm using a a just the ones I could think of off the top of my head when it comes to some of the more mainstream uh, police interactions that ended poorly that where someone was shot. You see people resisting. You see people refusing to comply with the police officers. What I tell people time and time, the talk you need to have with your kids, 
is if you're if you get pulled over by the police, you comply. You do what they say, even if they are violating your rights. Yeah, I said it. Even if you feel like that officer is violating your rights, you do what he says, because if he's a racist and he has intentions of doing you harm, if you do nothing, you have a greater chance of surviving and you live to fight another day. I'm talking about pick your battles legally. And people want to say, oh, the police don't do anything. Nonsense. Police officers get fired. Police officers get suspended. Police officers go to jail. They go to prison. I got homeboys, dudes that were homies, best friends, locked up, went to prison as officers, black, white, brown, all that. I've seen it. And when it's all said and done, no officer wants to deal with internal affairs because it is a headache. And if you have a good agency, they will investigate all these claims. Anything that, if you say that this officer did X, Y, Z to me, what you, the talk you need to have with your kid is you let them know if they get stopped and they feel as if the officer violated their rights or, or, or abused them or, or was overly aggressive with them, you give that officer's name to the best of your ability or you get a good description. You remember the location of the call, of the stop, intersection, time of day, and you, you pass that on and you make a complaint to an internal affairs and they will investigate. So and that's the so same far. thing that the other officers have told us almost yeah. verbatim that we've talked to is they said, you know, get the officer's name, get the details, report that person. And, you know, because that, that's that's really your best line of defense, because thing that will spark a whole other process. Mm -hmm. for Let me tell you guys something. Back in the day, I was back in my single days, I was on a dating website where I had this picture of me. I was looking pretty good too. I had my, I wasn't in uniform, but I had my shirt on, my dress shirt and I had my shirt open showing my six pack abs. Somebody People already in the comments talking about you, Eric. I'm just saying you might want to slow your roll, bro. I'm just saying, we got, you got fans. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm very much taken. I appreciate it, but I'm very much taken. But I thank you, I appreciate it. Back in the day, in my single days, I had a picture, I was on Black People Meet, thought I was looking fly as all get out. Somebody complained, and next thing you know, I'm in. I'm sitting in front of the Internal Affairs Board. Somebody thought that the way I was looking was inappropriate. I wasn't naked or nothing like that. I just had my shirt open. My chest was a little bit out, my abs out, and I'm sitting in front of Internal Affairs. So I guarantee you that if you're gonna sit up there and you're gonna try to, you're an officer, you're gonna try to beat up somebody, they're gonna check it out. They're gonna investigate it. Have a little bit, I don't need, I'm not saying you need to have total faith and confidence in the system, but have a little bit of confidence in the system and trust that somebody's going to do something. And nowadays, body cameras everywhere. Everybody's got a, a camera phone, dash cams, surveillance cameras. There's a good chance that it's being filmed and being recorded. So when you have a complaint, do the right thing, follow the rules, do what that, do what that officer tells you so that you can walk away if you have a road cop, a bad cop, that you don't put yourself in a trick bag in a bad situation. I appreciate that because I think, you know, one of the things that people might hear us saying is that, you know, there's no bad cops and policing is just 
all hunky dory and people only get killed when they are you that's know like saying there's no out. such thing as sin you know, yeah exactly right. and and we're not saying that at yeah. all what we are saying is that a lot of times the media pushes a narrative that isn't true and that the data doesn't support the narrative that's being pushed and that we need to remember like how are you interacting with someone who is in leadership? How are we, um, yeah, just how how are we living out our own responsibility and what can you do to get home safe if you do have a roll cop? I guess I'm wondering, uh, Joey had made a comment earlier on YouTube about the traumatic effect that playing these these videos over and over again in the media you know, I wonder what impact that has on the black community when you hear this narrative over and over again. I, and I'm just wondering, like, either of you can answer this, but, you know, I just wonder what you see or what your thoughts are about how that impacts the black community when these the, the, the mainstream media is just constantly playing these videos over and over again and, and how that forms and shapes people's perceptions both about themselves and law enforcement and oh i, I do have tons of thoughts yeah. eric you can <laughs> go, go ahead, first go you, i was gonna say um one i think that it it creates a narrative about who we are as a people um it also creates a narrative about who the police are as a people as a group and then when you when you bring these two groups together so when one group goes to work it, there's automatic sparks that are flying just based on narrative. So if, if to me, if I was a police officer, I would, I don't know that I would necessarily want to go to work. I think we've even seen an upsurge of police officers quitting or transferring yeah. to other precincts and things like that away from the inner city. To me, when, when I go in, if I were a police officer and I had to go into a rough neighborhood and I thought that there was this huge war on police, because I think that's another narrative that's being pushed that there's this huge war on police. And I don't know if that's true. I think what I saw um, on the two officers that were, to me, attempted assassination on these two officers in Compton, I would say, man, there there might be a war on police. With that, I think that even coupled with the violence that you see all the time, with the um, interactions that you have that may be violent, that may um, cause things like PTSD, and then you send someone into a, a rattled community, I think if I'm an officer and I'm struggling with all this, it the the media and seeing those those pictures and hearing the narrative over and over and over again is just gonna make me edgy and on guard. And I think the community is also edgy and on guard. And when you put two edgy groups that are on guard together, it it just breeds an explosive environment. And I think nothing that's a lot of what we see. Nothing good will come from that. You nailed it. I think you summed it up way better than I could have. When you have all these tensions that are being built, when as a police officer you feel as if it's no one's no one has our support you have the politicians talking bad about us you have the mainstream media talking bad about us you have some some of our leadership talking bad about us the everywhere everyone the 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 communities that we police don't trust us you feel like it's us against them and then you have you turn on the the NBA and you got them painting Black Lives Matter on the court and LeBron James going on TV talking about, oh, they're just hunting us down in the streets. 
you hear this over and over and over again, eventually you will start to believe that to be the case. And you have two combustible elements coming together. And what we see, I think last year at the heat, at the height of all the drama and violence, the shooting in Compton, I actually have that on a board. I have a board like reminding me of why I, I'm doing some doing the things that I do. And I have those officers and I have the guys shooting them through the window on, on a, a, a Y board. Like this is when I get tired of making videos, when I, because I get, sometimes you get so much heat and hate coming back your way. When I get tired of doing that, you know, I look at that board and I'm reminded, man, this is why I do what I do. And, and I also have another incident where this officer, and I, I have a video on my YouTube channel where this LAPD officer goes off on some dude who's just being a little mouthy and starts beating the mess out of this dude, punching, punches him like 20, 30 times, some, I mean, some ridiculous number, just because the guy is mouthy. I have both of those on a board that I look at every single day when I go into my office or go in the kitchen and start working because I want to be reminded of, I want to save lives. I want people to understand that not every cop is bad. I also want people to understand that not every black person is somebody who's your enemy. And I try to always remember, and I try to have as much of a balanced approach as I, as I possibly can to be reminded of those things and try to be someone who's bringing some semblance of peace in the midst of all this mess. Yeah. Well, we could go on and on with you, Eric. This has been such a great conversation. I, I hope you'll come back sometime and and talk to us some more. And um, what could we do as Christians, as citizens, to help support the the police, even in our local churches or in our community? Like, what are things that everyday people could do to help show support for law enforcement? I would say, uh, let them know something as simple as I appreciate what you do. If you, if you're out and about and you see an officer, just let them know that you appreciate what they do. You give them support. There are, there are a few at my church. There are a few other officers that are there. I'm, I've been retired since 2014. So I try to encourage them to remind them to stay rooted in the word because mm -hmm. there can develop in an officer. It's a very real risk. You can, it can a root a root of hostility or us against them, the, the bad guys over there, and we're the good guys. I, I try to remind them that as believers, that that shouldn't be our mindset. We should always understand that it's the sin nature that's acting out, and it can act in us, and it can cause us to do some of the most some of the most foolish things that we could possibly consider, even think of. So I try to remind them to stay grounded, offering a prayer. If you have an, if there's an officer that you know, praying with them and just letting them know every now and then that they're appreciated. And that, because I think now is a difficult time. You have more, as uh, Monique mentioned earlier, that you have more officers leaving. You have more officers retiring now. It's, it's the hiring rate has dropped astronomically across the country. So just try to be an encouragement. And I think that can go a long way. Hmm. Yeah, that's good. good. We have so many questions and, and what we promise we're going to have Eric back on. We'll do yes. more questions because there's a lot, a lot to do. But we, we won't be so talking about no black people meet, though. <laughs> we got <laughs> some good groundwork done tonight. 
That was the old me. He's dead and gone. <laughs> all right, we, the, the, old Mon- right. the old Monique was probably on there too. I'm See, sure. She looked, do kind of look familiar. What? <laughs> what? Y'all. Y'all. People. I'm sorry, Monique. She, that was, she was probably in the My club. I, I ain't going to lie. I was in the club. Y'all. <laughs> y'all, 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 this is a family show. Can we get back? The old Monique. <laughs> yes, the old Monique. Woo, we goodness gracious, the old Monique. I have no room to judge at all. Right, so Eric, right. tell people again how they can get connected with you and follow follow your good work that you're doing there. Oh, thank you. Uh, I would say the first place is, Co- uh, is my YouTube channel, Code Red Conversations, as y'all can see right here, Code Red Conversations. Come check me out on YouTube. That's where I put out the majority of my more detailed content. You can also find me on Facebook at Code Red Conversations, and I'm pretty active on Instagram. Or you can just find me, Eric Muldrow, on Facebook. That's where I interact the most. But I'm trying to migrate over to some of these other sites that are a little friendlier. Come join us on Gab. Gab's a good... I'm on Gab, too, so I'm going to find you. Yeah, come look for us on Gab. I'll get there one day. (laughs) But come join me at at YouTube. I'm trying to build up my channel. Oh, definitely. Yes. Yes, yes, it's it's good. Like this, I'm telling you, it's legit. What's being put out is legit, and it's so helpful to think about these conversations. Well, it's so great that you're just a brother in the Lord, and we can talk to each other in in that way. And thank you so much for all you're doing to sow into people, Eric. Thank you. Oh, for thank you, hanging thank out for having us. me on. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Take talk care. To you later. All right. Bye. 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 All right, that was good. That was good. Uh, like we could have kept going for another hour, people. Yes. Uh, we see all your questions, but yes. we will have Eric back because that was. Uh, they're still talking about how handsome he is over there. All right, I'm like y'all. That man is married. If y'all don't back <laughs> up, ooh, two things I don't play with: a parent and a spouse. That's okay, right. uh, uh-uh, y'all better watch out. All right, so um, quick, uh, quick announcement: if you haven't already yet, make sure you go to our website. Sign up for our email newsletter. Um, you know, go to all the things. Go to Theology Mom. Go to Center for Biblical Unity. Make sure you get signed up on all three of our platforms mm-hmm. so that we can stay connected with you um, just in case something happens to us on social media. And you can find us on Gab where we will still be there even when we get thrown off big tech. That is true. That is true. <laughs> so, Alyssa, I was just stating the fact that I see I girl, I, I see I'm just saying I don't play with no spouses. I'm be putting no little hearts. I talk. Mm-mm, mm-mm. All mm. right. Okay. So real quick here at the end, uh, we're going to do something new. It's new. It's not the tweet of the week. That's my deal, but we're going to have something new. That I'm we're gonna calling... try it out. Y'all can be honest if you don't like it. If y'all just want the tweet of the week, we'll I'll submit. This is so yeah. I, I came up with a name. We're gonna call it Mo's Moment, and she's gonna do her own thing here. All right. Okay. So I don't have like no intro or opening or nothing yet, <laughs> <laughs> but I do have. I was thinking, well, you know. Tweets are cool, but I have things that yeah, I like things. to think to yeah. bring up too. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so this we're gonna, so take, we're turns. gonna take turns. Yeah. Yes. Going back and forth. She's gonna have her tweet of the week. I'm gonna have my most moment. And so this week, and it'll kind of be similar in vain okay. of things that I noticed that happen right. throughout the week. Um this week though, I wanna highlight a post that you actually did. Oh. Yes. And so I don't know if we have the graphic. 
It says, disciple your kids as if their futures depend on them not fitting in with the culture. And when I saw this, and you didn't, I don't think you even told me that you were putting this up. But when I saw this, I was like, oh my gosh, what an appropriate word for this season. Especially as I think parents are having conversations of how do I prepare my child for what's happening? Mm. How do I prepare my child to understand pronouns? How do I prepare? It's a mindset issue. Yeah. Like it, it, it's a worldview yeah. issue. Like, how do I train my child in the proper worldview? How do I train them to stand? I, parents, man, parents have a lot on their shoulders. But I thought that this was such a good instruction to parents to train them as if they may not be fitting in with the culture and that that's okay. That as Christians, we aren't meant to necessarily fit in. We are meant to stand out. And how do we stand out knowing that we stand securely on the firm foundation of 2000 plus years of historic Christianity? The days of uh, cruise control for Christians are over. Yes. The day those days are gone. We have to if we're going to as we're raising the next generation, we've got to teach them from, you know, the outset of their mindset uh, being one of countercultural and not fitting in because, you know, those days are, I think, behind us. And this is a little teaser for something that's coming up very soon. A big announcement about a parenting and discipleship conference that I've been working with our friends at Women in Apologetics we're putting together. We haven't announced it yet, but it's going to be amazing. It is. Now, I have a so, question for you. Yeah. Um, for the parents out there. Now, you have raised two semi-adults, <laughs> in the, in 22 almost yeah. and 18 almost. They're, yeah. So in a couple months, one will turn 22 and one will turn 18. What was, like, if you could just give one tip, one pro tip on how to raise a child countercultural to understand that hey we might not fit in what would your like just one tip be to parents oh gosh you gonna spring that on me just like that uh remember at the autumn times when you be springing things on me i never did that to you the devil is a lie <laughs> or did that to you you're kidding me right people excuse us while we have a sidebar <laughs> can you just answer <laughs> people don't want to know about our business like that okay okay thank you uh one thing well i guess I don't know. I I think that the culture has changed as my children have grown. It was, you know, different when I, when my kids were younger, you know. And so I don't know that I was super intentional about it. But I think if about three years ago, I started realizing like, oh, things are really changing and I've got to change the messaging. And so talking to... um just just how we've ordered our lives, I guess, as a family of we're not going to watch certain things and we are going to have Bible time and we are going to um, pray together as a family and we are going to do these positive things. I think being in it with your kids is really the the biggest thing instead of kind of telling them, well, why aren't you reading your Bible? Like we're going to do it together as as a family. I think that the biggest thing is biblical literacy. Um, a lot of kids who are growing up in Christian homes haven't read the Bible. Mm-hmm. They don't actually know what's in there. Mm-hmm. And so it's so easy for them to get swept up into social justice narratives because it uses just enough Christian language mm-hmm. that they're familiar with that it hooks them. So I guess my big tip would just be read the Bible with your kids. It's hard. There's some hard parts 
there's a lot of days where we sit at the table and we all look at each other and say, I'm not really sure I know what that means. Revelations chapter 17. <laughs> what is we this? We were like, I'm not really sure, but I'm hoping that that's even okay to say that in front of the kids to say like, well, the parts that we're more sure about, this is where we build our lives. And then there's these other parts we're not so sure about. But as yeah. I grow in my faith, I've learned this. And I don't know. That's that's my best guess with that. You know, one of the things that I've seen since living here um, is your guys's constant conversation to bring things back to, well, how do we do this as Christians? And I don't think anybody does it, you know, consistently right 100% of the time. But just to be in the conversation, um, to sit down and say, hey, we are going to have Bible time every morning at 7.15, even though nobody needs to be anywhere till nine. You know, like... (laughs) Sometimes it's early, folks, Um, you know, or we're going to make sure that we pray together before you leave for school this morning. Every morning, I think just begins to build consistency and also um, helps to to form like the idea that this is what we do. And it's not, you know, some like Uber have to, but it's, it's, this is what we do. We, we build relationship with the Lord. We, how are we interacting and engaging with scripture? I think just being a model is, um, is important. So Sarah's asking, how do you get them, which I assume she means by them, children, our children to read the Bible without being legalistic or overbearing. Um, well, first of all, I define the word legalism as a law that's not in scripture. Like it's a man-made law. Mm-hmm. Reading scripture regularly is actually a scriptural idea. So I don't think that's legalistic. Um, the The overbearing part is we've just made it a daily rhythm. I expect my kids to brush their teeth, take a shower, put on clean clothes, and we're going to spend 30 minutes together um, reading the Bible as a family. Um, that's just what we do. And part of being in a family is this is how we're all going to show up together. So and, I mean, it's not easy. There are days when everybody complains about it. Can we, can we not do it today? <laughs> you know? And I mean, adults, children, we've all been there. And so I would say to think that a child saying, well, I don't want to, or do I have to? Yes, you do have to. You yes. have to brush your teeth. You have to you brush go. your teeth. You got to do this. This is also something that we Eat do. Eat your it, vegetables. It becomes yeah. part of the rhythm. Um, and I think that if that comes from, if there's a dad in the home, that's really important. I think that for us, that was just so important. Bob just woke up one day and said, we're going to start doing this as a family. Mm-hmm. And we all said, okay. And that's what we did. We said some other things aside from okay. <laughs> but um, eventually we got to Okay. But but I think that that's important is that the parents, you know, come together and say, this is this is how we're doing it. This is how we're ordering the home. And that's that's important. And, is, you know, as much of a. But I mean, you guys also make it fun and and, and you, we I take mean, as turns. much fun as it can be at seven o'clock in the morning. But you, and we take turns choosing. Which who, books. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Who, what, what do you want to read? You ask questions. We get like everyone gets to ask questions. Um, we get to talk about it just like. You know, we talk about anything else. And some days the stuff we read don't make no sense. And what does this even mean? <laughs> you know, so just being real. Everybody, try to have everybody participate. Ask a question or. At least one thing. One thing to contribute in the conversation. Yeah. That's good. 
Lindsay says, we have made a habit of reading at breakfast. We all read and are quiet while eating, but then we also have a time where we dive into some theological doctrinal truths. You know, another, um, yes, I, I appreciate that. And um, I think that's awesome. It, it's a, a center time, like to be in the word. Get Natasha Crane's book. She actually has, she, I think she, she has, has three, three books. Yeah. Three books. Um, look up Natasha Crane. And she taught, uh, what's the name of her book? How to talk to your kids about uh, Jesus. Yeah. Kids getting your kids on God's or keeping your kids on God's side. Yes. Is one of them. And then she's got how to talk about God and how to talk about Jesus. Um, at least I'm sorry, least Natasha. Could, <laughs> I mean, you could go watch I, yes. our, our interview with Natasha as a good introduction. If she's new to you, she's fantastic friend of the ministry. Yeah, so. and she um she has books just for parents on this exact topic of how do I talk like to my if, kids if about Jesus? If you don't Jesus? feel equipped, yeah, yeah, how do I get them in the word? Things yeah. like that. It's all important. And then um another thing that I wanted to talk about in regards to your your graphic is that this week on Thursday, I'm going to be having a special family meeting. We'll start at five o'clock and I'll be talking with Elizabeth Urbanowitz from um, Foundation Worldview. And she does worldview curriculum for young people, especially littles. And so how do we have conversations about critical race theory or critical social theories with young kids? Because we're seeing it in curriculum that children are being taught in school. So how do we think about this? What are some important questions that as parents we should be asking, we should be asking of teachers and ways that we can engage our children around these issues. And the time there says six, but we actually are going to meet at 5 p.m. Oh, Pacific. Sorry. Thanks for telling me. Sorry. Sorry. We're <laughs> going to meet at 5 p.m. Pacific. We will get that updated um, 8 p.m. Eastern. Okay. Good to know. I'll update that on Facebook and the graphic. And Sorry everything sorry so anyways all right so that'll be a special family meeting this week um over at the center for biblical unity facebook page and youtube channel and a live stream there okay folks she's out of gas she's going back up to bed and we want to say thank you hope you have a good week good night and god bless thanks for listening to all the things be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week. <laughs>